HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Yeah, there's been days where, you know, you're sitting at your desk, you know, and you're just like, what, what is, you start asking all of those questions that everyone asks, like, what am I doing? What is this happening? You know, we're losing money in Haiti. What did I sign up for? Um, we made a promise. Now we can't turn back. Um, you know, your reputation, who you are is, is, is what you've said you are, right? So we can't turn back after we said we were going to do this. So we just have to figure it out. I'm Luke Griffin, and you're listening to a new series that takes you into the extraordinary lives that people lead in a community exploding with arts, activism, and entrepreneurship. It's a Brooklyn neighborhood called Bushwick. Once branded one of New York's most dangerous neighborhoods, today it's transforming into one of the city's most eclectic. This series introduces you to the remarkable people whose journeys collide here. Today, you're going to meet two of them. A brother and sister who got an unexpected call and turned their lives upside down to answer it. This is Bushwick, Episode 1, Building IET. On an otherwise lifeless sidewalk outside a collection of offices in one of Bushwick's massive converted warehouses... Beside a thrift store and surrounded by mechanics and other vaguely industrial workshops, grows a striking green display of plants. In India or the Caribbean, these plants might not be so out of place, but here in Bushwick, they're unexpected, to say the least. Big, leafy, spiky, exotic, the display presents some textbook examples of two special plants, castor and moringa. Castor and Moringa have both been grown throughout places like Southeast Asia for decades, but today they're having a breakout moment across the U.S. They're incredibly versatile and can be used in everything from teas to superfood supplements to cosmetics. Yet, for all they may one day do, today these particular plants here on this sidewalk in Bushwick are simply being used to welcome you to one of Bushwick's most surprising new stores, a place called the Papa Rosier Farmhouse. When you enter the farmhouse, you'll be struck by the sight of a huge machine whirring away in the back. Something that looks like a giant blender Frankenstein together from a Cuisinart and a tractor. Behind the machine is Barry Thomas, 
one of Papa Rosier's lead agronomists, smiling as he scoops in big cupfuls of what he explains are castor seeds into the blender. Barry points you around the store, explaining all the different things that the Papa Rosier farmhouse manufactures. An expansive list of bath and beauty products from Moringa-infused soaps to castor oils to beeswax candles. Papa Rosier Farms is the newest in a growing number of retailers specializing in what are called natural beauty products, a movement that might best be described as farm to sink. These are things like soaps and oils that are meant to do what your typical body products do, only better and without the scary sounding chemicals. The farm in Papa Rosier Farms is actually quite literal and refers to the 50 acres of land in rural Haiti where Papa Rosier Farms grows their ingredients. This storefront is just the endpoint of a much longer chain that begins with Papa Rosier's community of farmers 1,500 miles away. And yet, the thing that Barry's the most excited to show you isn't the rice-enriched face bar or the lavender body lotion. It's an iPad. He flicks through its photo roll to show you some unexpected pictures. Kids, maybe around kindergarten age, with big beaming smiles dressed in bright yellow and green polos sitting around a classroom. This, Barry explains, is the flip side of the Paparosier coin. Those 50 acres in Haiti aren't just home to castor plants and moringa trees. They're also the site of an ambitious plan to renegotiate the future of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, a project called Bati School. It's the beginning of a K-12 system that one day may rival the quality of American schools. It represents a radical vision for education in a country where less than a quarter of people make it to high school. Bati and Paparosier do more than just share this farmland. They're the twin parts of a movement to equip Haiti's next generations with the tools necessary to solve the island's substantial challenges. The plan is simple. Employ a community to produce amazing products, sell them to conscious consumers in the U.S., and use the proceeds to fund transformative education that creates opportunities for Haiti's students. It's a remarkably clever approach that's the result of years of learning and community building. And it's all the work of a brother and sister two Haitian-Americans who immigrated to Brooklyn from the island when they were children. My name is uh, Ruben Samidi, um, uh, owner of Papa Rose Farms. Um, we've been at it for eight years now, um, and we've recently opened up in Bushwick. Um, and hopefully That's Ruben Samidi, co-founder of Bati School and Papa Rose Farms. And if you listen closely, you can actually hear Barry loading the castor beans into the blender in the background. Rubens is a compact and handsome guy, with a shaved head and a long, angular beard. He's charming and speaks with the calculated confidence of someone who spent a decade making deals on Wall Street. To meet him is to catch him in a rare moment of downtime at the Papa Rosier farmhouse, as he buzzes from responsibility to responsibility, whether that's dealing with suppliers, hugging customers, or hopping on a conference call with his co-founder and sister, Freddie. I'm Fredeline Amidi Benjamin. Uh, I'm a chiropractor, I'm a wife and mother of three, and I'm, from by most people's account, I'm Freddie. <laughs> Freddie accurately describes herself as much chattier than Rubens. She's prone to long and emotive answers to questions, and you can tell she enjoys sharing detailed stories. You quickly get a sense that she's more openly vulnerable than Rubens, a bit less polished and just as likely to tell you about the things that make her cry as the things that make her smile. But like Rubens, she laughs often, speaks affectionately, and never fails to ground her own stories in the stories of the people she works to support. 
Rubens and Freddie make up the core team behind Papa Rosier Farms and Bati School, with Rubens primarily responsible for the farm and Freddie primarily overseeing the school from her home in Florida. Between the two of them, they make the long commute to Haiti every three weeks. As Rubens noted, he and Freddie have been at this for eight years now, but 2018 has been particularly eventful. It's already seen them pass two major milestones. Earlier this year, they opened the Bushwick storefront as Papa Rosier's first brick and mortar, and at the start of the summer, Bati completed their first successful school year with dozens of students ranging from three to seven years old. But by the time you listen to this, Freddie and Rubens will be at the most critical point in the project yet, and their ability to succeed will determine the future not just of their business, but of a community of thousands that has put its trust into them. The stakes are high, and for Rubens and Freddie, they're deeply personal, part of a mission to give a generation of Haitians an opportunity that they never had. in the early 80s. Uh, we're a family of six. Um, I migrated here when I was eight, turning nine. Freddie and Rubens were born in Haiti, where they lived with their family until the early 80s. It was a dangerous time to live in the country. The country was in shambles. There was no leadership in Haiti at that time. So a lot of bad things were happening and um, uh, kids were getting kidnapped. Uh, kids were going missing. The government was in an uproar. Um, my father was in the um, police force, and that proved to be dangerous at that time. So it was better to leave than to stay at that point. The ruling regime, led by the controversial Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier, was beginning to crumble. Government-sponsored hitmen known as Tonton Makut or Boogeymen were terrorizing the population and making people disappear. For families like the Amides, the options were to endure the turmoil and risk their children's lives or seek safety somewhere like the United States. Rubens and Freddie's parents chose the latter, and they ended up in Brooklyn. And once we got here, it was tough. Like every, I guess, immigrant that comes to a country, doesn't speak the language. My parents traveled a lot, so they had been to the United States. But us children, we never did. So it was a culture shock. Uh, You didn't speak the language. It was extremely tough because I came in in the fourth grade. From learning how to speak English to learning how to double Dutch, Freddie, Rubens, and their siblings worked hard to familiarize themselves with life as Brooklyn kids in the 80s. But as they became more integrated into their new home, their parents made a point to keep them at a safe distance from their old one. My father plays the guitar. He's a musician. So he's constantly playing and we're constantly singing along. Uh, We cooked. My mother loves to cook, so we ate predominantly Haitian meals if it wasn't takeout. So culture-wise, we maintained it, but as far as link back to Haiti, none. Because the whole concept of coming here wasn't uh, we want to migrate, but it was getting dangerous. We had to migrate. While Freddie and the other children had at least some memories of life in Haiti, Rubens, the youngest, was left to create his own image of the island, something between the warm culture that his family practiced and the deadly warnings that they preached. My mom literally would not let me go. I'm the only son, youngest son, and she was just always like, no, you're not going back. And that was honestly because the way she left the country. So a lot of the middle class 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s left Haiti. So you were left with very rich people and very poor people because the middle class up and left when there was instabilities, uh, un, when, it, when the government became unstable. So their vision of Haiti, all the people who left, was I left and I, I'm, it's still the way I left it. So for her, it was, I don't, wanna, I don't want you going back into what I left, even though she hadn't been there in 20, 30 years. And so it went. Rubens and Freddie, born Haitians, became Haitian-Americans, part of a growing diaspora that had had its future in Haiti taken away from them by violence and corruption. By 2010, Rubens and Freddie's lives looked much different than they did back when they were first learning English from Michael Jackson and Tina Turner. Freddie had moved to Florida, where she was a successful chiropractor and owned a series of private practices with her husband. Like Freddie, he was from Haiti, but whereas much of her family had left the island decades earlier, his had stayed. His parents might, uh, never migrated, they just sent him abroad when the same situation, it turns out that me and him migrated to the state at the same time, around the same time, uh, of the uproar, and his mother's uh, reasoning was the same, except she chose to send him and his brother, and she stayed in Haiti uh, with uh, the father. So he, his story's a little different, but our roads are similar. Uh, so in 2010, I had been going back to Haiti regularly for the last 10 years because of my husband. Freddie's parents had done as much as they could to keep her away from her home country, but as an adult, she began building a link back to the island. Yet, for as close as she had begun to come, she was still a world away, living comfortably as a middle-class American with her husband and three children, far from the poverty that had overtaken Haiti in the years since she and Rubens had left. Rubens, meanwhile, had never returned to Haiti, and he found himself in a world even further away. He was about to enter his sixth year on Wall Street, successfully rising in the ranks of sales and trading at Goldman Sachs. Seven to seven workdays, client dinners across the Northeast. It was a life that paid handsomely, but one that was perhaps meant for someone else. I chose that path not because of talent, not because of my educational background. It was 100% of, hey, it's a meritocracy. You can make great money here if you work really hard. Um, and I don't think that's how people should choose their career paths going forward. Um, so I was starving um, for something else. As he starved on the trading floors of Wall Street, staring down a life that he felt increasingly dissociated from, Rubens could never have known that something was coming that would change his life and the lives of millions forever. 2010, I'm, uh, January 12th. 2010 to be exact, um, sitting at my desk doing the you know client thing on Wall Street, talking to clients, uh, sales and trades, uh, future sales and trading to be exact, and the earthquake happens. Um, the earthquake in Haiti happens, um, and we're you know on Wall Street uh, on the trading floor. There's just like televisions everywhere, literally hundreds of televisions on the floor. Um, whether you're going to get coffee, you're going to the restroom, you're watching CNN, you're watching Bloomberg Television. And this was on, and we're just watching it, and everyone obviously is horrified at what they're seeing. Um, but me, it's a little bit closer because I'm like, I'm from that country, and I still have family there. 
We still have a lot of relatives there. Um, so it hit close to home. Um, and that was, I think, the first thing that kind of made me ask the question of, um, what are you doing exactly with yourself and with your life? Rubens and Freddie, along with the world, watched as a magnitude 7.0 earthquake devastated Haiti. Estimates vary on the exact number of people affected, but hundreds of thousands of people are believed to have been killed and even more injured by the quake. For Haitian Americans, the footage was a heartbreaking vision of loved ones they couldn't help. You felt helpless is what you did as a Haitian American, sitting and watching and watching CNN and knowing the places in, you know, the area and seeing people. It, it felt really painful um, for me and terrified and saying, what can I do? Is it safe? Can I, as a mother of three, just go, hey, I'm here, you know, without a thought process? What am I going to do? What can I do? She, and even more so Rubens, felt a call to do something about it. I think that was the first time Rubens and I actually had a deep conversation about Haiti, believe it or not. Um, And he was telling me he's done. Like, he is working on Wall Street. This is a different world. And this is, like, this has traumatized him. And we're going back and forth, and he's like, I don't care what happens, but I'm leaving. I'm going. While the world prepared to deliver aid to another developing country hit hard by a natural disaster, Rubens and Freddie prepared to go home. The first flight they could find to Haiti was about three weeks after the earthquake. They'd gathered supplies like food and toothbrushes from friends and family, and use Freddie's connection on the island to get a driver. With a lot of enthusiasm, but little in the way of a plan, they set out in search of a community they could help. We went down there in hopes of finding recipients. Um, No real plan, just got in the pickup and was driving around, taking in all of the devastation throughout Port-au-Prince, taking in, you know, all of the buildings and, and all, and you're seeing the, 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 the people being so resilient because by the time we got there three weeks later, um, people have started to kind of move on with their lives, believe it or not, even though there was still rubble in the streets and people were still being found alive, and, but you still have to kind of keep going. And, and, and we saw that, that resiliency and in one, one particular community that we drove past where we went in. They ended up in a village outside Laogon, the region at the epicenter of the earthquake. As it rained upon them and the hundreds of villagers that had gathered, Freddie and Rubens gave away the supplies they'd brought, in addition to a whole factory's worth of rice they'd picked up along the way. As happy as they felt to be back in Haiti, doing their part to help its people recover from this disaster, Rubens and Freddie were more than anything struck by the devastating scope of chronic problems that the earthquake had uncovered. But the moment that sticks in my head till this day, which I have that picture uh, around all the time, is... There was a mother standing there. She had to be in her early 20s. I didn't speak directly to her, but she was expecting, had to be somewhere around six months or so. She had a toddler in her arm. No, she had a baby in her arm and a toddler holding on to her skirt. And after we gave, uh, you know, whatever it is we came to give and hand out, I looked at Rubens and I was like, um, how did we change her life? 
Um, I'm not sure we did anything just now. Okay, potentially we gave them rice for two days, a toothbrush, flip-flops, bars, so sustainability for two days. But how did we really impact? Flying back from their once homeland to their adoptive one, Rubens and Freddie had a choice. They could carry in their hearts the good that they'd done with their food and their supplies and return to their comfortable American lives. Or they could use the privileges they'd earned as Haitian Americans to try to help give Haiti's next generation the future on the island that had been taken from their family so many years ago. They chose the latter. Literally, as we're doing it or when we came back is kind of when we said, listen, this was great. Um, you know, hearts were in the right place, but um, that wasn't even a Band-Aid of what was needed. Um, Haiti, what we've realized during that trip was that there were issues way long before the earthquake that needed to be addressed that the earthquake just highlighted. The earthquake didn't bring on these issues of lack of education or no infrastructure or lack of jobs. Um, that was long before the earthquake, and we realized that um, if we were going to make a lasting impact, or if we wanted to make a lasting impact, we would have to focus on those core issues and not look at the earthquake as something that created all of these issues. The plan seemed simple. Rubens and Freddie couldn't step away from their demanding jobs or their families, but they had resources they could use to help organizations doing work in Haiti. They had skills. They had money, and they could speak Creole, the Haitian-French dialect that few outside the island knew. All they needed to do was find some good nonprofits that they could partner up with. But like so many things in Haiti, it wouldn't be that easy. The jargony term for nonprofits is NGOs, or non-governmental organizations. Haiti's been called the Republic of NGOs because it has more of them per capita than any other country in the world. And in Haiti, NGOs are where the money's at. Widespread distrust in the Haitian government has created a system where up to 99% of aid funding to the country goes to private organizations, not the government itself. Even prior to the earthquake, the system was rife with corruption, with nonprofits misusing aid funding for their own personal gain. The billions of dollars in aid that poured into Haiti after the earthquake were like gasoline on the fire. This system is so deeply entrenched, in large part due to a lack of faith in Haitians' abilities to take responsibility for their own futures. It's a country where foreigners see problems, but they don't see the people living with them. And even worse, they don't imagine the solutions coming from the communities they're supposed to support. Rubens and Freddie began to see this for themselves when they started researching organizations to partner with. No one really had the same vision for what we wanted to do going forward. And when I say that, I mean um, a lot of people, when you do aid or you do help someone else, it's usually good enough for that person. And um, we just want to take a different approach where we looked at it as, we want, what would you want for yourself and for your family and for your kids and for, for your upbringing? And if you can't deliver that to someone else, then you probably shouldn't do that. Or if you can't try to at least have that as the benchmark in delivering whatever it is that you are trying to help with, um, then you shouldn't be doing it. Freddie is less diplomatic when describing her own experience with an organization that she and Rubens had vetted, a group out of Wisconsin that worked with orphan children. On a ride-along visit with the organization to the island, Freddie was horrified by what she encountered. The lady that led the organization had a friend that had been there for weeks. And after me and her chatting and getting friendly, 
she pulled me to the side and said, Freddie, mind you, this lady just met me. Freddie, um, could you please make her stop? I said, what do you mean? She said, this lady doesn't know what the heck she's doing. Please make her stop. And I'm sitting here like, what? I just get, like, I don't know the lady. What are you talking about? What she was talking about was the organized treatment of orphan children as almost subhuman. The Americans stayed in a house with running water and ate fresh food each day, while the children slept outside in tents, used the woods as toilets, and ate spaghetti. The organization let children run around without names, and kids ranging from toddlers to teenagers were subjected to the same classwork in what could only loosely be described as a school. But for all the upsetting things that Freddie encountered, the most moving was an exchange with a group of little girls who'd never met someone like Freddie a black, Haitian woman in a position of power and strength before. What was another pivotal moment for me in all of this was me walking there and all of the kids trying to figure out who am I and why am I here? And I said to them, what do you mean who am I? I'm here to help like everyone else you see here. They're like, yeah, but you're black and you're Haitian. So to me, I was taken aback by sometime how little we do back to the country that got us going. So to me, I was like, wow, like, like these children really haven't seen because essentially they see me. They see, they, they see me, meaning just as much Sorry, sometimes I get emotional. Sometimes I get emotional about this because this is what keeps me going. Because at that moment, I felt they could see themselves through my eyes. And I, in turn, can see me through their eyes. And that was important. If the earthquake was a call for Freddie and Rubens to return home, this heartbreaking visit was an invitation to stay. They now understood that if they wanted to do something real, something transformative, They needed to do it themselves. After we came back from the earthquake, we spent six months just speaking to other NGOs and kind of doing our homework on what what are the issues that we actually saw in Haiti, right? Was it, were people hungry? No. Were people, you know, uh, were there lack of, resources for those people? No. Was there, like, disorganization? Yes. Was there lack of education? Yes. Um, So we were like, well, why don't we just try to address those actual issues? Um, So we spent a, a good five or six months of dissecting what the issue was, and it always came back to the youth, and it always came back to education. There was just one problem. Neither Rubens nor Freddie had any experience with education, let alone in a developing country that, by this point in their lives, they'd become strangers to. But if Rubens and Freddie had something going for them, it was their ability to thrive as outsiders under the highest forms of pressure. After all, they'd gone from immigrant kids who couldn't speak English to the heights of some of America's most demanding professions. They knew what it meant to be inspired to reach higher than what other people could imagine for them. School is the foundation of everything. You give people an opportunity to think and dream, the, the, it's limitless. 
you go and you give somebody the opportunity because that's what's wrong with Haiti. People stop dreaming because it's been tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. So people are on quick fix and how do I eat tomorrow, but not how do I save and potentially have more for next month because I might not be here next month. They chose the name Bati to reflect their mission in Haiti, or more accurately in Creole, Haiti. Bati stands for Building IET to Inspire, um, and it's an acronym. The word itself, um, we play, we used a Creole word, which means to build, and we used it as an English acronym, being that we're in Haiti, but we're also doing a lot of work here in the States. So, Rubens and Freddie's family was initially reluctant to come on board the project. After all, their parents had spent years believing that the island posed a mortal threat to their children, but the earthquake had, at least in part, change that narrative. Now, it was Haiti that was in mortal danger, with the future of generations of Haitians at stake. Freddie was surprised to say the least then, when the most critical break in the project came from her family's past during a conversation with her mother. We're telling her we're going to purchase land or what have you, and she says to us, why would you need to purchase land? Um, We have family land. So we're looking at her like, what? What are you talking about? She's like, next to me right now in my, uh, my lamp uh, table, uh, I have all the paperwork to grandpa's land. And I said, okay, rewind, explain. And she's like, my grandfather was a farmer. And, you know, I knew that because we used to go on vacation. But like I told you, I migrated early. But grandpa was, was not educated. But he knew one thing for sure was that Education was the way out. So my mother and all her siblings were educated at Catholic school. So my mother said, all these paperwork are sitting in a drawer. And I said, Mom, are you serious right now? She's like, yeah. I'm like, I need you to FedEx that like yesterday. (laughs) They used the deed to reclaim 50 acres of land that had belonged to their grandfather, the Papa Rosier. Over the next several years, they slowly began to piece together the ambitious vision they had for transforming that land. They raised funds through charity races and donation campaigns, and they began laying the foundation for the school that would become Bati. But for all their hard work, it was clear that their ambitions and the promises they were making to the community demanded more time than they could give while holding down full-time jobs. Haiti is a tricky place. You're either all in or you're not. If you really want the outcome that you're looking for, and I always say in life, I'm either all in or I can't right now. After five years of sneaking conference calls in between client meetings and patient visits, Rubens and Freddie had to ask themselves the hardest question they faced yet. Were they all in? Haiti happening as, as, as bad as, as it was, um, for me it was like, an eye-opening, like literally a calling for me that I did. I made sure I did not let go once that happens. Once the the fire was inside my stomach, and it was just like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep. Even if it's little by little in the beginning, um, there's something to this. There's a reason why my attention will not move from this. There's a reason why I'm not listening to my wife for the first time. Then let me follow that feeling rather than the uneasy feelings that I've had for the last ten years. Rubens left Goldman Sachs to focus on the work in Haiti full-time in 2015. Freddie followed soon after in 2016. But with these changes, 
needed to come sacrifices. They had children and responsibilities. To step away from the money and the stability afforded by their hard-earned careers was both the ultimate bet on their abilities to succeed and the ultimate recognition of just how deep their commitment was. An immediate consequence of this commitment was that if fundraisers weren't paying the bills before, they definitely weren't going to cut it now. The fourth or fifth year, Freddie and I are looking at each other and we're like, we just can't. Number one, we're going broke financially. Her husband's not happy with her. My wife's not happy with me that we're just spending our money into something that they at the time couldn't grasp. Um, because even for them, the closest people to us, it still was a foreign idea of making this happen. Um, so yeah, we were just like, what are we going to do? Um, and it was out of this necessity to now not only succeed, but to also pay their salaries, that the idea for the Papa Rosier Farms business was born. Freddie and Rubens knew they could utilize their greatest resource, the farm, to help sustain their work with Bati School, but it took years of trial and error to figure out how to utilize it successfully. We were planting everything. So at first we were planting for consumption, and then we were planting for sale in Haiti. So we planted every vegetable that you can think of that uh, harvest in three-month increments, we planted. We As you can imagine, Cucumbers. the economics behind profiting off of produce in Haiti weren't in their favor. But thanks to their willingness to experiment and quite a bit of luck, they realized that more promising alternatives were right in front of them. Castor is a big part of Haitian culture. We use castor oil for just about everything. Um, literally just about everything. Um, hair, skin, when you get sick, to cleanse yourself. It's a very big part of our culture. So we always knew castor was there. We didn't know what a market in the States would be like for castor. So it was almost a perfect storm for the castor because I think oils is a big thing now hitting the Western world and keep more people want to have natural and castor is a natural preservative. So um, the castor was an easy one. The moringa was a little bit different. Um, a friend of my sister's came to her and said, hey, I, I hear you guys have the farm in Haiti. There's this new superfood. It's called Moringa um, in Colombia. It's a big deal because she was Colombian. And she said, here, here are these seeds. Take it back to your farm. And I promise you this will be a good thing for you guys. At the very minimum, it'll help with nutrition of your students. My sister packs her seeds, goes to Haiti. We're all excited about this new thing called Moringa. And we get down there and we show our agronomist. And we're like, hey, look, this is the Moringa seed. Let's do our nursery Let's see what we can do with this plant. And he looks at us like we're crazy. And he's like, this is all over the island. It was all over the island. And that's when we were like, okay, again, going back to lack of education. Because you have this thing that's not being utilized that can literally change lives just by eating it. Today, as they've leaned into the opportunity with Castor and Moringa in the natural beauty world, they're starting to pick up momentum. Paparozier Farms products are available for sale online, and traffic to the Bushwick Farmhouse is picking up. But the success they're beginning to see with Paparozier and with Bati is built off the back of hard lessons, not just about farming and succeeding as a business, but about their larger mission of serving Haiti's next generation. As Freddie explains, no matter how successful Paparozier Farms products might become, the ultimate success of Bati School rests with her and Ruben's ability to truly connect with the Bati community. That's easier said than done when you're commuting from another country. I also realized that I am a stranger to the Haitian culture after being gone for so long. So I need to humble myself and listen 
and take it in. Yeah, I know I'm in the States and I have to go back and forth, but this is important in the survival of Vati long term to get our footing in, to understand the culture that is Haiti. They have a goal of creating a thousand jobs in the community, but Rubens, Freddie, and even Papa Rosier Farms only have so much impact on whether that goal gets reached. Ultimately, that's by design. Rubens and Freddie see themselves not as saviors, but as facilitators. Their special privileges and resources will help ignite this process, but it's up to the community to take off. Once we started taking more advice and, and made things more about the community is when we started gaining more traction because now the people in Haiti had skin in the game, right? We weren't bringing people to construct the school. It was your dad or your uncle who was working on construction. We weren't bringing educators to come educate your children. It was people within the community. So there's, there's more uh, onus on the community to see the project succeed than just people who came here who had a good heart and wanted to do something well. It's more like, no, this is your thing. This is not our thing. This is yours. We put it in your hand. You're building it for your children. And we are just in the background assisting with the resources and pushing the the general idea through. But understand that it is for the community, built by the community. Today, however, Freddie and Ruben's special privileges and resources are still very much essential to the community's future. Progress is picking up, but they're constantly reminded of all the people they can't help. At least, not yet. It's, I mean, it's even difficult now because the kids that we met during our second and third year, our kids are too old to go to our school now. Um, they, they just, we grew up with them, but by the time the school was ready to open, they had, they had surpassed the age. Um, so that happens. We're reminded every day about the people that we can't help. But in a country where children go nameless and communities sit under the thumbs of foreign organizations, perhaps the most radical thing that Papa Rosier and Bati are doing is letting the community know that they're seen. Nobody said to them, hey, let's sit down. Your opinion matters. Mine matter. So let's sit down and see where we can meet somewhere in between. Nobody has ever done that for them. So for them, just the fact that I come there every month and I engage parents and hug and kiss and say hello, and how do you feel, how's your child doing, and I know your children by name, it means everything to a community that just wasn't seen. Much of the world treats Haiti like it's incapable of helping itself. Freddie and Rubens believed otherwise, and the community they're supporting has proven them right every time. And graduation was the prime example. These parents just blew my mind. They prepared all the meals. They were there at 5 in the morning till graduation started at 4 in the afternoon. You know, hairs were done, makeup. It was hilarious. But they showed up. They showed up and they did it. And at graduation, I said, yes, you guys did it. I showed up, but you guys did it. So, you know, for those that didn't believe, here, we prove. We've proven it. That you get together and... For those that uh, doesn't know, the motto for the Haitian flag is Union fait la force. means unity builds strength. So we get together on the same level and we speak the same language, not necessarily Creole to Creole, but we speak heart to heart. Because sometimes that's more important than language. <laughs> With Bati's first school year successfully in the books, 
The stakes will only become higher and more personal from here. When the story airs, Bhatti's second school year will have kicked off, not just with their returning students, but with a brand new class of young Haitians and their families who are being promised that there's a place that believes in them. Now, it's up to Freddie and Rubens to make good on that promise. Rubens says he projects Papa Rosier Farms to move from nonprofit to for-profit within the next seven years, a sign of confidence that business will not only survive, but that it will exceed Bati's requirements. For now, at least, that seems a long ways off. Due to finances, they've had to delay the completion of the second story of the school, and Rubens, Freddie, and the whole Bati community will only need to work harder to give Bati's current and future students the opportunities they deserve. This, of course, will be enormously difficult and personally trying for the project's leaders. Despite all the things we're doing in Haiti and all of that, Rubens is a father father of three, and I'm a mother of three, and we're both married. <laughs> so there's that old has aspect. And there's no way I'm going to leave and go to Haiti and give all of me in Haiti and forget my purpose in life, which is my three. So to be able to balance that does take you to a sunken place. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of things helping Rubens and Freddie succeed under this enormous pressure, but none is more important than their relationships, foremost with their families and with each other. Rubens and I always say one thing, we can continue to do this as long as we're not both in the sunken place at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So we're supposed to be pushing each other up when one's in the sunken place with the other one. They say, no, no, we'll be okay. (laughs) But just as important as their relationship with each other is their relationship with Haiti. Freddie and Rubens didn't have a choice for a future in their birth country. It was made for them. Now, they're seizing upon the opportunity to give that choice back to Haiti's next generation. And even on bad days, an opportunity like that makes it a lot easier to get out of bed in the morning. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that there are some dark periods where you're like, man, I, I miss that check, or I miss the, the stability of that check, not necessarily the check itself. Um, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't know how well your Wednesday is going to go sometimes. So uh, for me, it was just more getting used to it. Once I got used to it, I mean, man, I, this is, I'm, I'm living the absolute dream. I, I couldn't have, I can't be in a better position than I am now, emotionally, um, just focus-wise, just living for something. Um, knowing that people are depending on you to get it done makes it a lot easier to get out of bed and know that you can look at yourself in the mirror and say there is something that you're working towards. Um, so today I'm, I'm loving it. I mean, we get a lot of... I'd like to extend a huge thanks to Rubens, Freddie, and the entire team behind Papa Rosier Farms and Bati School. You can find out more about them at their websites, paparosierfarms.com and batischool.org. I'd also like to thank you for listening. We've got a really exciting season lined up, and I can't wait for you to meet all the extraordinary people who are ready to welcome you onto their own incredible journeys. Join the community and follow us on Instagram at Bushwick Podcast. Send us a message either in the DMs or by emailing us at hello at hearbushwick.com. We'd love to hear from you. And for all our listeners here in New York, we've got a really exciting event going on this weekend. We are partnering with Papa Rosier Farms for Bushwick Open Studios at their Bushwick Farmhouse. 
Friday, September 28th through Sunday, September 30th, noon to 7 p.m. each day. Come by to meet the team behind the story and join a live series on the art and science behind Papa Rosier's craft body oils. That's at 96 Knickerbocker Avenue here in Bushwick. You can find out more on our website, herebushwick.com. Can't wait to see you there.